again to another edition of Lost in Science across Australia on the Community Radio Network and through various podcasting uh, apps and so forth. This is Half an Hour on your radio where we talk about science and my name is Stu. This week I'm going to be talking about uh, a story you might have seen in the news about someone having a volcano appear in their backyard overnight, which probably quite surprised them and woke them up out of bed. Obviously, it wasn't in Australia. It was in New Zealand. But, uh, yeah, just going to talk about how that happened and, you know, what what are the benefits of having volcanoes in your backyard, <laughs> the if there are any? Yeah. Do you think it's a short list Probably, a, Probably a reasonably short list, yes, yes. Claire, what have you got for us this week? Stu, I... Um, I have a story about eye shine and not just, you know, shining your eyeballs up. I mean, what happens? <laughs> Does anyone do that? <laughs> I don't know. You get a wire um, <laughs> brush and just get a good polish on them. <laughs> what happens when you shine a light into certain animals' eyes and they shine really brightly? Why that happens, what animals it happens to and why it's in different colours. Um, so that's what I'm going to be talking about today and um, the anatomical features of that um but we also have a very special guest in the studio today joining us jacinta bola welcome to lost in science thank you for having me guys i really appreciate it and jacinda you are bringing us a story today so i'm not a researcher i'm a science journalist i work for science alert which is a web-based science news channel i also do some stuff with a company called story seed vault writing micro science fiction and just generally do lots of science nerdy things i'm going to be talking about how to make a turing machine in magic the gathering i'm asking for a friend obviously who don't know what magic the gathering is <laughs> um so it's a card game it is a very complicated card game which is the reason why you can make a very complicated machine called a turing machine inside of it Oh, that is incredible. Using yeah. technology to solve games. <laughs> yes. Beat your opponents out. Yeah. I love that. Fantastic. Well, uh, stay tuned for that all later on in the show.
you're both from Australia. You might have noticed we don't really get earthquakes in Australia. No, there, there was one uh, quite a few years ago in Melbourne, right? Um, the worst thing that happened was some plastic furniture yeah, fell someone's, over, right? Someone's, someone's garden chair fell over. Garden chair fell yeah, over. We, we yeah, we can rebuild. Yeah. Oh, actually, no, I was in the um, Newcastle earthquake in 1998. Oh yeah. Oh, so sorry, nineteen eighty eight or nineteen eighty nine. Yeah, I, I was I was in that too. I slept through it. <laughs> Did you? That's, that's how severe it was. You must have had a hangover. No, I was in Sydney. It was You're fine. You're in Sydney. Yeah. <laughs> um, counts, do. But we do know where there's volcanoes and where they used to be active, but they're mostly dormant and they're not really likely to cause us any problems. And that's because basically Australia is right in the middle of a really big continental plate, and it's quite thick, and there's not a lot of geological geothermal activity near the surface that would cause any earthquakes or volcanic eruptions no none of those like um tensions between plates right no we're just kind of yeah we've got a big edge around us that's under the ocean we have hot spots though we do have hot spots that's a different story for a past episode um but the situation in New Zealand is obviously quite different, uh, partly because the islands that make up the country sit on two separate plates. So part of the South Island is on one plate, part of it's on another plate, and the Northern Island's on a different plate. What? So they're on two different plates. Part of it's on the Australian plate, another one's on a different plate altogether. So guess what? New Zealand gets lots of crazy geo yeah. geological activity, pretty yeah. much. Um, so those plates grind against each other and cause earthquakes and a bunch of other geological activity that we basically never see in Australia. So you've probably heard of Rotorua. Yes. Uh, in New Zealand's famous attraction based on geological activity, basically. Um, they have massive mud pools and geysers and hot springs you can lie around in and enjoy yourself. Sounds Sound- great. It's, it's Sounds really... dangerous. Like... Oh, no. No, no, not at all. It's, it's kind of a bit, you know... There's a lot of sulfur in the air in Rotorua, uh, I noticed when I was there. But it's basically because... Sulfur and love in the air? Well, there may be love in the air. Depends who you, who you go with, I guess. <laughs> um, <laughs> but uh, just in the last couple of weeks, uh, a new attraction appeared in Rotorua, basically overnight, in someone's backyard. So... What sort of attraction? Well, basically in... Susan Gedai's backyard in a suburb of Rotorua, a mud volcano popped up in her backyard. So at two o'clock in the morning, uh, she woke up and the ground was shaking and she thought there was an earthquake, which a lot of people in New Zealand would suspect. They've been trained to how to respond to earthquakes. Uh, She rushed out and saw that there was a geyser in her backyard spewing hot mud up to 10 metres in the air at temperatures of 90 degrees Celsius. So this is really hot mud it would burn you if it touched you um and it just kept getting bigger (gasps) 10 meters more than 10 meters in the air yeah it was just shooting mud up into the air um so apparently the land around the lakes at rotorua are known for their geothermal activity this has been known since prior to european settlement you know the local people knew about it for a really long time um and this area had been apparently known to spurt out the occasional little burst of steam would come out of the ground, but nothing like this. Uh, and uh, no one ever really knew it to be this active. And the guys are tripled in size over the course of about three days, forcing the family to move out of their house because it's about to engulf their garage and their <laughs> and their garden shed. So it's it's just getting bigger. I think it's I think it's calmed down by now, but um, it's it's about 
sort of uh, about 12 metres across uh, at this point, and it was getting bigger, so they were a bit worried about it. Oh, my goodness. Um, obviously, this is not great news for that family because they don't know what's going to happen. Their house is, you know, they've sort of had to move out of their house and they're not sure about the foundations and all of this sort of stuff. Yeah, and I can't imagine in the insurance, like, small print, fine print, that it would say, like, we will protect you against ghosts well, that just appear in your backyard. That's an act of God, surely. Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure how that would be, especially if you lived somewhere like Rotorua, which is kind of surrounded by mm. this kind of activity. But look, there is an upside to having this volcanic activity so close to the surface, and it's one that the New Zealanders have taken advantage of, free energy. <laughs> True. Yeah. So around a fifth of New Zealand's electricity comes from geothermal energy sources. Fantastic. And some of them are not too far from Rotorua. They've been doing it since the 50s and 60s. They first started looking into it. And they've got, yeah, uh, about a fifth of their total electricity generation comes from these uh, sources. So they use either natural steam arising from the geothermal vents or they inject liquid into the vents and turn it into steam, mostly water, basically. But that's pretty much how all electricity is generated. We're, we're not really beyond the steam age we've you know even even nuclear reactors are basically heating up water to drive wind to drive electrical turbines so you know um using using steam that's already coming out of the ground and just whacking a turbine on the Great. top why wouldn't you why wouldn't you do it why if you had you? the opportunity um estimated that they have surveyed sur- further suitable locations to more than double their use of geothermal electricity in the in the future from 900 megawatts to almost 2000 megawatts um, and that's just the stuff they've surveyed. They reckon there's probably even more if they go looking for better locations. Well, they've got one more now, right? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they could have their own. They could they could sell electricity yeah. to their neighbours potentially. Um, they also like that it's the most reliable form of renewable energy because it doesn't rely on the weather. So solar and wind are very uh, reliant on the weather conditions, but also so is hydroelectricity because if you have a drought then you've got no water to run your hydro plants. Um, so, yeah, look, there is an upside to having that. I would still rather not have, uh, uh, you know, the, the the hot springs are really relaxing, but waking up at 2 o'clock in the morning to a volcano in your backyard, not so relaxing. <laughs> I think I'd stay away from that one. Great for a mud bath, though. 90-degree mud bath. <laughs> it's a bit warm for me.
Across Australia on the Community Radio Network, you're listening to Lost in Science. So have you ever found yourself outside with a torch and come face to face with your cat or dog's shining demon eyes? Yes. Yes. I've even caught caught them on film. Did you? photographs, yeah. (laughs) We don't use film anymore. What is this? (laughs) The 90s? You just regressed back to yeah. the mid-90s. I mean, I had my phone in my pocket and I took a picture of my cat, but yeah. And then? And then demonized. its eyes would, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, it gets me every time thinking that a demon cat has come to claim my life. <laughs> and, you know, it's even more terrifying when you're out camping and you find and you, like, you know, shine a torch into the darkness and some demon eyes stare back at you and that's not your cat or dog because you're out camping. Whose eyes are they? Whose eyes? It's got to be a yowie, surely. It's got to be a yowie. <laughs> or a bunyip. I don't uh, know. Depends where you are. <laughs> well, spoiler alert, um, animals don't turn into demons after dark, except maybe gremlins when you give them water. When it gets, <laughs> <laughs> when it gets dark. Um, what we see is eye shine, which is a component of the eyes of certain animals, which gives them the ability to see better in the dark. Um, so you get eye shine when light enters the eyes of certain animals. Um, it passes through the rods, which are the light receptors and the cones, which are the color receptors of the retina, which is of course the image surface at the back of the eye. Um, and behind the retina, um, the light strikes a very special membrane. Um, and then it's reflected back through the eye, um, back to the light source. So um, back into our eyes. So eye shine happens when the light goes through the eye, through the retina, back to this special membrane and peel back again. So we see it as as eye shine. So how does that benefit the animal? Doesn't blind them? Well, I will get to that in a second, Stu. Okay, yeah, yeah. So the mirror-like membrane, it's called a tapetum. Tapetum. Yeah. Um, tapetum lucidum. Um, so it's a lovely Latin name for you all out there. Um, and it allows, yeah, so especially nocturnal animals to see in the dark a lot better. So most of the animals with eye shine are night hunters, which is why you see it when you took a photo of your cat. Mm-hmm. Um, as you know, cats are night hunters. They go crazy at night. Um, and and it makes, it, it pretty much gives them the ability to use the um, the available light twice. So... Um, once when it comes in and then once when it's reflected out and then it comes in again. So it's basically giving them night vision because it's doubling yeah. the image they're getting. Yeah. Well, um, for example, in cats, um, having the reflection of the tapetum lucidum increases their sensitivity of light um, by 44%. Oh, wow. Yeah. So it's it, it, it gives them a, um, a much... Um, um, you know, it, it allows them to see light in pretty in very very dim conditions. So yeah, yeah so they yeah they're getting a, a more high resolution image in what we would consider it's darkness. Darkness, yeah. exactly. Yeah, yeah. So the majority of these glowing eyes belong to mammals, but spiders, crocodiles, and some frogs are also some of the other creatures that have that you'll find with um, reflecting demon eyes. Um, and an interesting side point is that animals with the brightest eye shine generally have more rods, um, more sorry, have fewer cones and more rods in their retinas. 
So as a result, they have excellent night vision because the rods, um, the rods are associated with the light, but most are colorblind because they have fewer cones which are associated with color. Also, oh, the rods are sort of more like contrast in their eyes. Yes. The difference between black and white, whereas the cones are the color. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So the less the less cones you've got, the more colorblind you are. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, so if you've seen different animals' eye shine, you know that it comes in a variety of colors. White eye shine occurs in many fish. Blue eye shine occurs in mammals like horses and cows. Um, green eye shine can be in cats, dogs, um, and raccoons. Apparently, there you go. And red eye shine occurs in rodents and um, some birds and also I think maybe crocodiles. So why don't we get eye shine if there's like horses and cows on that list? They're hardly yeah. predators, are they? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, they have evolved to have eye shine as well to keep an eye out for predators. I guess, yeah, yeah if, if the predators have got night vision, they need to have night vision as well or <laughs> totally. they wouldn't be around for very yeah, long. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Um, yeah, so... Yeah, as you would know, we, we don't have um, we don't have a tapetum lucidum in our human eye. In fact, if you see a person with eye shine, you should probably ask them the following question. Are you a demon <laughs> or a cat? <laughs> Maybe. Or some form of alien or life. Some form of alien life because we don't have eye shine. Um, instead, we've got dark colored cells behind our retinas, which absorb light um, instead of reflecting it. So there you go. Um, so it's but, not, the, not the same as when you get red eye in a camera. No, it's not. No, it isn't. It isn't the same. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I can't tell you exactly how it's not the same, but it's not <laughs> the same, Stu. Um, right. But what I found really cool about this anatomical structure is that it was the inspiration for a lot of the uh, retro reflectors that you see on the market today. So... Um, so if you see on road signs or as markers on the road, um, when you shine a light on them, your bike light or um, your car light, and they reflect that light back to you. Oh, yeah. Um, Didn't that, they, they're even called cat's eyes, aren't they? The yeah. ones built into the road. Yeah. yeah. And and they, so they were actually inspired by cat's eyes. Wow. Yeah. That's not why just they're a clever cat's name. eyes. It's not just a – I mean, it is a clever name. <laughs> Nature's amazing. Nature is amazing and scientists have patented it.
Okay, so we've got something. Have either of you played Magic the Gathering before? No, I haven't. No, I no. haven't. I haven't personally played it, but I know people do play it. A yeah, lot. I was going to say, is, is, is it a is it a card game? Is it a um, is it a yeah. game? So I'm sure everyone's got a nerdy cousin that has played this. It's a card game, but it's different to like your regular deck of, what is it, 56 cards? Whatever a normal deck of cards has. It's got 19,000 different cards to choose from. They've all got completely different abilities and they can change how the game is played. So say some decks, for example, might make you... Um, lose your life, which is a part of the game. Another part might make you mill your deck, which means you die a different way. It, it completely changes the way the game works. Most of them end up with you dying? Yeah. The, okay. yeah, yeah. The aim of the game is to not die. Okay. Yeah, right. there you right. go. So it's, but not, every, not everyone has all 19,000 cards, surely. No. That's no, not no, how no, the no, game no. works. So okay. you don't... You don't, <laughs> you don't have to shuffle with 19,000 cards? That would be one hell of a barrier for entry. No. Yeah. So what you do is you pick whichever of the 19,000 cards you want and then you put them into a 60-card deck. You can create more, but 60 is the basic one. Um, and then you battle your deck against someone else's to see who comes out on top. Okay, so the way, now we've got that out of the way, um, there's actually a really dedicated group of people, of Magic players, that aren't actually interested in winning, um, but instead they're making something called a Turing machine inside of Magic the Gathering. Now, they've been trying to make this work and kind of succeeding since the late 90s and early 2000s, which is insane. This game has been going for 26 years and they've been making a Turing machine out of it for most wow. of that time. Okay. How does a Turing machine work? Yes. Let's get started. Um, everyone knows Alan Turing. Well, most people know who he is. Um, in 1936, he actually came up with a thought experiment called the Turing machine. And then what you do in this machine, well, Again, he thought about it. It's not a physical thing. But I want you to imagine a scanner, a long piece of paper with numbers on it, and a table of instructions. The scanner reads what the piece of paper says and checks the, checks the table of instructions to decide what to do next. The table of instructions might say to change the number on the paper, so like erase the number and replace it, and then move one spot to the left. Then that left spot will get scanned and the cycle continues. Right. Okay. Have I lost you yet? Probably. That's okay. <laughs> I'm, I'm in scanner land. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> That's a pretty solid one. Yeah. Um, okay. So it's kind of like a programming sort of It's exactly exercise. like a program. It actually is the basis for what computer algorithms are today. Right. So same way that works, you know, you've got a program that goes, okay, what do you say? It then continues in that same way. Um, however... How do you do that in Magic, a card game? Well, in this version, the paper, like we talked about before, is something called creature tokens. They stretch them out on the table and it actually, if you were doing it in real life, it would be an infinite number of tokens, um, which wouldn't be much fun to play, but that's fine. Um, and then you would move one spot to the left or one spot to the right and you change the number of um, counters on the tokens. Okay, so if you've played Magic, which you haven't, it's fine. You may know that there are some set of cards which can trigger infinite loops. So again, in the same way that programming has infinite loops, um, it can happen here. So one card is played, it triggers another card, which triggers another one until you end up back at the beginning and it goes round again. In a normal game, the player might be able to pick between two cards, but in this Turing machine version, once it gets started, you don't have player choice. So instead, you continually trigger cards until you're either in an infinite loop or the machine finishes and you emerge the victor. 
Okay, now the cool bit about this, does your head hurt yet? (laughs) Probably. Why would you want to do this? I think the researchers would probably just say because they can, but there's actually a couple of reasons why it makes magic special. Um, Board games don't do this. A lot of board games, think about any other board, any other game you can think of. It's got a board, it's got a number of tokens, it's got a number of cards. This game doesn't do that. So because of that, it actually has implications for AI and seeing whether there are um, certain things, combinations that you can make that AI can't actually figure out. So it's basically there's, it, it changes what your objective is to yes. something completely different. Yes, and it means that you that as a like if you're trying to work out what the the token is or what what the outcome is, you can't do it. Right. Where in a game of chess, you can work out who's going to win from a certain number of spots. Yeah, you can't do that in this particular version of Magic: The Gathering. Um, so um, if you manage to trigger the correct set of cards with a Turing deck, it's impossible for a computer to know whether you'll end up stopping or looping forever. This is actually called the halting problem. And it's really important for computers. Um, and it actually is the first time we've seen this in tabletop games, which is very cool. Um, if you- <laughs> so are people actually using a Turing machine to play? <laughs> no. See, okay, here's where it gets interesting, right? Because it's, there's only – now, there was a particular number. I think it's 1 in 50,000 is the chance that you'll actually get a Turing machine in a game. It's also completely impractical. It doesn't make sense to play in a game. And you because a 60 card deck, you have to shuffle them before you play. So you wouldn't be able to if you were playing uh so you the chance of you picking the exact right cards to be able to make it work is basically impossible. You're not going to be able to do it. But it doesn't really matter to these scientists. They enjoy it either way. Um yeah, so you're going to have a 1 in 50,000 chance of actually getting that deck. Not great odds. That's all we've got time for on this episode of Lost in Science. Thanks for tuning in and joining us. Lost in Science is recorded at the studios of 3CR in Melbourne and broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network with the financial assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. If you want to talk to us, talk back to us, uh, you can get in touch. We have a Gmail account, lostinsight at Gmail. Uh, You can also find us on Twitter and on the Facebook Uh, And if that's not enough lost in science for you, you can always tune in again next week where the team will once again get lost in science. listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. 
Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.